Well, now you don't sound so mad. <laughs> you guys should have heard her just two seconds ago. It was real cute. She was like, oh, I, my, I didn't put the <laughs> SIM card in. I'm so mad. <laughs> it was. It was like Monica Erickson. Oh, Christ. I forgot to put so the card cute. in. It was so cute. That's the most adorable mad I've ever seen. Heard. <laughs> I'm so mad at myself. I'm so anyway, mad. Episode How 551, How's My Sarah? Oh, I'm doing real well. I'm, well, I guess I'm doing really, really well, according to <laughs> my friend Susie. <laughs> we I were have... just on here chit-chatting before, yes. and Suze was telling me, like, a bunch of... She was being a wonderful friend and reflecting what maybe we can call growth. Yeah, no, I, I've been noticing... A sea change within you. <laughs> I don't nice. know. I really don't know if it's just you know my own. I'm projecting no, or something. No, I, I really feel validated right now because like I feel much calmer. Yeah, and it almost feels like oh, so this is what it's like to be a person. <laughs> and that right. feels that feels nice that you see that because then I feel like it is real. Yeah, it certainly seems like it like but it's the best combination because you still have the big reactions to like good stuff and funny Duh. stuff, but you don't have the low reactions towards the painful stuff. Oh, yeah yeah, you know? Yeah. That's a really good point. That it does feel like that. It feels like I've had a few experiences recently that I've been really scared to have, and they've turned out not that bad. Oh, really? Like the car accident. Okay. I mean, my insurance rate did go up, which was like real sneaky of them to do because yeah, they did not pips. really tell me. And yeah. I was like, what the hell? Yeah. If I had all these months up of this, and it was my first accident ever. So like, what the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> Any hoodles. Wow, they so, really yeah, took so advantage. Like yeah, so like that kind of stuff where I, I, I thought it was going to be, you know what it is, that now that I think about it, it's that self-worth, that feeling of of if I'm not perfect or yeah. if I mess up, then I'm bad. Yeah. And that is bullshit. Yeah, that is That's why. not true. Yeah. That says who? Mm-hmm. If if we push back on that, there's it's usually... Oh, says somebody who was toxic in my life or who was like... He says someone who is very unperfect. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, I think I've just kind of really realized that. And the un- the plus side is you do have the realization. The unfortunate thing is that you have to go through those learning lessons yep. to realize that and also setting healthy boundaries with people mm-hmm. and i've also oh my god i'm like now i'm just giving you a list of like here's I what i've it. been doing but um you know i think a lot of us know these things and then we we don't want to do them or we we kind of default to old ways and then we just have to trust that over time and just continuously um I don't know, challenging those thoughts or asking like, well, where does this belief come from? That we do break down those, those, mm, I don't know, structures or those, those limiting beliefs. 
Yes. It's a shame it does take so long. Constructs, not structures. That's what I'm saying. But, my God, when you get there, what fun it is. Yeah. And then I just am like, no matter what, I'm going to be okay. Oh, that's so good. That's the feeling. Is like, we're fine. What ifs? I often, there's a phrase from that uh, Indigo Girls song, Closer to Fine, where they say, it's a great Great song. <laughs> no, that was way off. Wait, me and Sarah are gonna. How's do it go? I'm not. How's it go? It. It go? It. Uh, and then closer I am to There we go. <laughs> Remember that song? That's when still not sing. it, but it's closer. It's it's it's, it's closer to fine. <laughs> it's closer, <laughs> but not so fine. Okay, continue with what you're saying. What's There's the line? There's a line you like? in the song that says, "It's only life after all." I think yes. that's a very good mantra to always remember, not to it's take everything so goddamn seriously. It's only life after all. My God, it is only life after all, and and yeah, and it really is just like. Do the best you can. Just really love yourself first, you know. And I've been, I've been not feeling bad about making decisions that put me first, and I feel like I'm being rewarded for that. I'm getting more comfortable with that, where I can go. You know what? My this just does not fit my schedule, or I've already made. Um, uh, you know, arrangements with somebody else, or I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to use you for this project, whatever it is, I'm feeling more comfortable in just saying that. And it's like easy. Isn't that crazy that we're so yeah. conditioned to think like you have to say yes to everything? That oh. It feels empowering just to be like, no. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Oh, it is, man. but it's so great when you get the hang of it. <laughs> Yeah, it's very freeing. So I feel like I'm getting a, like a little head start to my fucking forties. It's really great. People have been enjoying that snake skin video that I posted. Oh, have they? I mean, like, it's a, a real shocker to see that because Barry caught That's Sarah this snake. Well, caught yes. he killed a snake and gave her the skin, and yes. it was like, what is she going to do with him? Like, she's hanging that baby right up. Yeah, I, I have to find a good plexiglass resource because the ones that I found so far are very expensive to ship. So I have to find one that's like LA local that I can drive and pick it up. I feel like that shit is everywhere uh, now. Like, you know, so I have to find. Wait, because I mean, are you going to crazy, but frame what? it like the full length of the thing? Yeah. Holy heck, that's going to And I have the perfect one. spot. I'm going to put it. It's about the length of the window in my office. So I'm going to frame it and put it above the window and then it, it's gonna look really cool that's so fun yeah it's very and like oh, it's very cool in here so but don't worry it's it's above the window where my clients can't see it because i thought about that i was like i made sure that everything i put up some shelves behind <laughs> me and i made sure everything that uh if you're uh on patreon on our next episode that we do video version you can see what's on my shelf behind me um but I made sure everything there was like all client friendly. So if you're yeah, a vegan, you don't want, like, I won't a offend phobia you. Emporium. Right. <laughs> right. Um, or offend any any vegans or anything like that. Well, but. and if you happen to be looking for a uh, therapist or someone to talk to, maybe you should try BetterHelp and let me yes. tell you why. 
BetterHelp is a great way that you can talk to a professional counselor about whatever it is that's on your mind. Um, but you can do it from the privacy of your own home. You can message your counselor anytime. Um, you don't have to go in anywhere and you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and whatever it is that's on your mind. If you're having trouble with depression or anxiety or anger relationships, they have people who are specializing in those things. It's so convenient. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash brain candy. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash brain candy. So what else is cooking for you? Oh, what else? I mean, just doing a lot of gardening. I'm really hoping that it's like fall soon. It feels like it's never going to be fall over here. Yeah. I I did wake up this morning and had a spooky, foggy morning. So that was kind of fun. (laughs) That's fun. But then it like went away by 10 o'clock. Are you going to be a witch again this year? Of course I am. (laughs) I've already like picked out and planned all my outfits and... Oh, so you're going to do the whole month of... The witch yeah. wardrobe. Okay. Yeah. That's so I'm going to go for that. I like to aim high. <laughs> I've already That's set so up the fun. filter. So for we'll real? see. Yeah. It's I'm like, like a special you know, witchy filter. Well, you know, I like made it like, ooh, like fall, like, ooh, mm-hmm. fall filter. <laughs> fall <laughs> filter. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. Yes. Well, um, okay. So what other things do I want to update you on? There is something that I did this weekend that was pretty fun that I thought you'd like, but, uh, and also I want to kind of like dive into and talk to you about a few really exciting things that I have to tell you. Okay. Um, okay. So I went to the, uh, that Van Gogh exhibit, oh, yes. the immersive Van Gogh thing. Yes. How was it? Did you go to that? I'm going next month. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I really liked it. Was it like what you imagined it to be? Nope, not at all. Okay, tell me what it is. So here's, so it is, they call it an immersive art experience. Okay. And um, it is a ex, an exhibit for Van Gogh where you really get to experience the paintings in a different way in a very up close and um uh like interactive it's you know what that's the thing where people got confused it is not interactive okay it's immersive Mm -hmm. and they say that where you're immersed in the painting but Mm -hmm. it is not something that you interact with okay there i that's where i think people are confused and i think that because of how it was advertised, it looks like a lot of those, like, I think people got the idea that they were going to, like, a color factory, ice cream factory kind oh. of interactive thing like that. It is not like that at all. In fact, this does not translate to photo at all. Oh, okay. You are not going to go and take good photos. It I would see what you're saying. feel, so, like, rude to pull yeah, out a people camera. people have gotten accustomed to this, like... We're going to get all kinds of cool pictures. Yes. But this is And I just, like, saw in the people who showed up there dressed for that and looking oh, like no. that where I was like, oh, okay. And then they, they left with kind of this expression on their face, like especially like girls in their mid-20s, oh, young Lord 20s. Oh, Lord mercy. You are kidding me. Like, yeah, for real. 
There's just like a whole bevy of disappointed influencers. Yeah. Like if you, if you said like to somebody dress like you're, you know, going to a Van Gogh picnic, that's what they wore. (laughs) Stop. I'm not, I'm not kidding. There were like dresses, like flowy, like dresses that seemed very like, like you should be holding a basket and like, or like (laughs) on a- Oh my gosh, like cottage core. Oh my God. That is so funny you say that because I just discovered that as I was searching for my witchy dresses on, yeah. uh, on Poshmark. I like, I was like, Oh my God, this is a thing. And also, do I like these dresses? Oh, like, heck yeah. I, think I do. <laughs> but yeah. So, so how it, what, what it is, is you go into this big empty space, uh, and they've done things like any, um, poles in the middle of the room or anything that that is um exposed they wrap it in mirror like a mirrored material ah, yes. so that everything like reflects and mm-hmm. then they use projectors and they project the images of his paintings that have been what i can only call like digitally remixed hmm. or like graphically remixed they project them onto the floor and the ceiling and the walls. And then there's a sound like music to it. Oh, and that's cool. I loved it. I think it was a beautiful way to, um, now I say this with a big old asterisk because there are some things that I find that I object to about this, but, um, that I've like since learned and also, well, we'll talk about that in a sec. But um, I'll say what I do like first. Uh, so yeah, so the music was wonderful. The it really was emotional. There were multiple times where I got teary eyed, and mm. you experience the art in what I, I feel like is the reverse way. Where you know, my mom was an art uh, uh, docent, like mm-hmm. she was a tour guide. And she is so knowledgeable about art and about paintings. And she would take us to, and she was a tour guide in Florence, Italy, which is like the Renaissance art capital of the world, literally the Renaissance art capital of the world. And so she would tell us about paintings, but she would tell us, it would be like on the drive there, she would tell us the history of the artist. She would tell us about what was happening, um, uh, uh, in society at that time. And when I was younger, I wasn't really interested in that. And unless you care about the person or you care about that time period, it's, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm listening, but like, what else? And then you go and you see the artwork and it's like, okay, yeah, this is beautiful. And so that's like one way to learn about it. One direction. This I felt like was the, the backward. It was almost like the reverse of that and or maybe like when you learn about it about the person's history and you learn about what's happening in society you're like ooh i can't wait to see their artwork what's it going to look like this was no information about van gogh really hmm. and all just music and all just visuals but they were so um like large and blown up that you could see the brush strokes you could see the emotion you could it's like see you're things in the painting oh you are in the painting like for sure and you, the way that they paired the music to it i do believe that they used uh you know his journals and everything to 
mm-hmm. match the emotion and match what was going on at the time period mm-hmm. in the paintings. It's almost like if you had a knowledge of what was happening there at the time, then you would be able to kind of piece a whole story together. But what I feel like it it if you weren't somebody who who knew a lot about Van Gogh to begin with but were interested in art, you would like I left this feeling like I really wanted to know more about Van Gogh. I was going to say were you a big Van Gogh person to begin with? Not I mean yes in that I res- I know the story I I know a lot about him I respect I really think that he's an amazing artist Mm -hmm. I love um the story behind Van Gogh and how you know I've I've heard that that art historians have looked at the views and I think maybe you told me this Mm -hmm. we probably talked about this on here about how the colors and the way that it moves looks the same as when you look at it through a certain kind of camera that senses like I don't know if it's like electromagnetic waves or yeah. something about it's things like like that the he drew the color drew the lines in a way that was actually how it looks if you're under looking at it conditions. through conditions. Yes, under yeah. certain conditions. Mm-hmm. And that is like so amazing and cool and awesome. But I wasn't somebody who was really emotionally moved by his paintings mm-hmm. until this experience. Boy, that's what you want when you leave an ex- exhibit is like I want yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, but I will say that I I I do not agree with the price and I do think that this is a problem that it it makes it only I couldn't afford this I got tickets because my aunt got tickets like in LA on the weekend that she chose like this was no way I mean they're like Mm -hmm. it's practically like 150 bucks per ticket or something now it's like that and it's only an hour that you get to be in there Uh and it feels like that that you know I was watching this uh art history teacher talk on YouTube about things that she objects to about the exhibit. And I was like curious to see, like, oh, what would somebody object to? And she made a good point. She said that the, the artist himself could never afford to not, I mean, it's, it's a normal thing that artists can't afford to buy their own work or wouldn't be able to afford purchasing their own work. That's, that's understandable but he couldn't even view his own work which Mm. is a really hard pill to swallow and it kind of reminded me of the conversation we had uh last week about uh jay-z and beyonce and Mm -hmm. the uh besquat or biscott i still don't know how to pronounce it um you know art who do you know who profits from it? Like, does it go to a foundation or is this okay. just like, you know, business? here's the other things. Like I don't have all the info on this and I definitely didn't research it. But from what I understand, the images that they use are free images. Oh, so, anyone so I do don't it. think that I think it's a it's a private comp. It's like a person. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, that he the his. Mm, whoever it is 
is not his estate is not profiting off of this huh well i mean yeah i see what you're saying there's an ambivalence because it's a great way mm-hmm. to experience beautiful stuff but it's not ideal if it's cost prohibitive to people right. who might benefit from it like i think that museums should take the popularity of this and if they're looking yeah. for ways to um attract new audiences yes. and stuff yeah i think this is the way to do it i think this made it really fun and made it emotional and made it immersive i think people really get confused with that they think the interactive thing Mm -hmm. and they're like oh Mm -hmm. this isn't you know well i I think you'll really like it i think so too um but i am gonna look into that that's interesting because i hadn't thought about like who is making money off of this right and i heard the first one that they did was in a cave in like france or spain or something so when you go and you think about what it would be like to do that whole thing in a cave would be oh so cool wow i'll say yeah well, just you when you hear the sound you got to go really cool. oh so lucky i feel very very privileged and lucky that you know and my aunt she works as a, a docent at the museum of modern art in los angeles so mm-hmm. she you know i think maybe she she was early to get information about this. And I think she got tickets a year ago. Originally it was for February Mm -hmm. and then it was postponed because of COVID. So now we're going. So I don't think she even paid the price that they are now. Now it's just like, Oh my God, it's ridiculous. So yes, but that was one fun thing that I did this weekend. I'll tell you what else is ridiculous is somebody who doesn't take their vitamins Uh, No. I mean, yes, that is absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. And, you know, it's funny because I was using my lovely, I got a bag from them that is a recyclable bag, I believe. And uh, I was at the grocery store and the grocers were going nuts over it. And it says on it, take your vitamins. And they were like, oh my God, I love this. And I was like, yes. And also you should take your vitamins. (laughs) Uh, Yes, you should. And you should definitely use ritual vitamins because take it from me. They are the only vitamins I will ever take because of how easy they are for my stomach to digest without any of that uh, yucky feeling that you can get sometimes with vitamins. And Mm -hmm. they're just so convenient because they come right to your door. But now they also have um, protein powders that both Adam and Lincoln have been uh, stealing and use yes. it. <laughs> it's very good. I was telling you about this a while back. Yes. And Lincoln will have one when he's done with school. He comes home and takes his little... Oh, that's uh, a perfect afternoon snack. It is. It's a vanilla, the one we have. Uh, yeah. They taste delish and he likes them. So that's great. Um, so why not shake up your ritual to make trying something new less scary? Ritual offers a money-back guarantee if you're not 100% in love, plus our listeners get 10% off during your first three months, just visit ritual.com slash brain candy dad essential protein today. That's ritual.com slash brain candy. That's such a good thing. Ah, um, oh, and yes. they're made out of peas. Come on. I love stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Totally vegan friendly. Right. Come on now. Veg- yes. And um, I found when I take um, protein that's not... Uh, uh, like a yes. vegetarian protein, yes. then my eye break out. Yes. There's side effects. I've noticed that too. I don't love it. Yes. No, this yes. is much better. Give it a whirl. Anyway, yep. 
Yep. Okay. Um, but I have a really exciting story that I talked to you a little bit about last week that I saved for this week because I, we ha- I needed a lot of time so we can really dive into this and okay. talk about it. So have you heard of Happy the Elephant? No. Okay. So there is an elephant named Happy <laughs> who is a 50-year-old uh, African – no, Asian elephant um, – I want to make a joke about him being an Asian American elephant, but like that. Wait, is I he? So he lives in the U.S. Yes, he oh, lives yeah. in the Bronx Zoo. All right, Asian American. That's fair. Right. So, uh, uh, so he's an elephant. No, she, she. Excuse me, a fifty-year-old okay. elephant living in the Bronx Zoo, and an animal rights activist group is fighting for. Uh, Fighting to have the elephant given the rights, or not even the rights, but basically fighting for personhood of the elephant. Personhood? Yes. Okay, so here is the question. Is an animal a... We know it's not a person like an individual. Okay. But is it legally... In the legal world, a person or a thing, do animal ha- animals have the right to bodily liberty? Hmm. Now, it's important to know that corporations and businesses and even yeah. bodies of water have yeah, been given, that's true. have been classified as persons. Yeah. Right? So that there's this big, so this, this animal rights group is arguing, and this is so layered and okay. to me is just fascinating. So this animal rights group is arguing that the the animal is lonely and it should mm-hmm. be able to be in an environment that caters to its needs. And now the animal the the elephant has been alone, I want to say for 2 years at the Bronx Zoo mm, and that's sad. so sad. So her the elephant that she was paired with, there's a, a an animal rights rule, I guess, or some zoo rule that states that elephants need to be in groups of three unless, like, there are other circumstances preventing this hmm. um, because they're social creatures. Hello. Uh, oh especially God. the old ladies. Like, they're, they're, that's, <laughs> they're like the matriarchs, and they need to, like, you know, be, like, hanging out telling other elephants what to do, I'm sure. And um, uh, so... There, she originally was with two other elephants, but the elephants got into two of the other elephants got into a, a fight, and there was an a, a incident where one of the elephants killed the other elephant, and the elephant that died was Happy's best friend, whose name was oh, Grumpy. Man, what name right. was Grumpy? Right. So since then, they've tried to put the Bronx Zoo is like she's fine. She's totally happy and content and 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 she is you know get socialization with the people who work there and they said that they've tried to like reunite her with the other uh elephant and she's not interested well yeah that elephant killed her friend grumpy right. and she probably knows it yeah right? that other elephant murdered her best friend yeah it was like uh, she was housed they were and they were together for 25 years 
Oh, God. The other, they, the elephant that did the injuring, her name was Patty. Yeah, <laughs> so they were, she must have known, Happy knew that Patty, uh, uh, you know, killed her friend. And she it's was like, like not telenovela. interested. Well, it really is. Why does, and it's, why do we have to establish personhood in order for them to get rights? Because if they are a thing, then they're just property. Okay. And the thing that's crazy is that the United States is the only country, really one of the only places where animal, where this, this isn't established that animals have personhood. And how about this? Did you hear about the, there was that documentary that Cher did, The Loneliest Elephant on Earth or like that one. So that elephant was in captivity in Pakistan Mm-hmm. And the um, the government of Pakistan, when they ruled on that case, they said it was like unequivocally and like undoubtedly an animal or a a, a person had these rights and yeah at, didn't even question it, and that was Pakistan. <laughs> right, my God. Where they said that this animal is a sentient being. There's no questions about it. Yeah, if personhood doesn't mean that they're human, it just right. means that they deserve, you know, basic rights, then yeah. And so this ha- there this was seen or like they started trying this case in, uh, I think it was like November or August of 2020, and they took it in front of the judge, the animal rights group took it in front of the judge, and uh, the judge said... Um, uh, kind of like what you were saying there, like, oh, so like what? Can it vote? And like, right. what does this mean? Like, what? It, it's a person? Like, what does that mean? And when the judge said that, the lawyer said, this shows that you don't have an understanding of what the uh, definition of personhood is. Because yeah. if you think about it, children are under the age they can't vote they don't have right they can't you know you can't drive a car if you're a child but you're still considered worthy uh, you have certain rights you know and when like they're so and and it's crazy because there are bodies of water there are um uh i think it was like a lake like lake erie or something like that where there was oh there was something that happened where let me see. I have it down here. Oh, yeah. Okay. There was a toxic algae bloom in Lake Erie. And so the voters of Toledo, Ohio, recognized the lake's rights to a healthy environment. And they voted in favor of the lake. They created a Lake Erie Bill of Rights character or charter <laughs> oh amendment. And, they, the, and because they established that, it meant that attorneys could sue polluters on the lake's behalf. So... If the animal is being not taken care of well, and this has happened like around the world, people have recognized animals as like persons in different cases, but the United States is the only place where they don't. And I wanted to ask you why you think that is. Well, that fact surprises me because, you know, 
a lot of the animal abuses that we've read about and talked about on the show have not been in the U.S. And I think in general, there's more of a philosophy right. of care for animals. <sighs> so that makes no sense. Do you think it's because they think it's implicit? Like, of course, animals matter or something. I think this has a little bit to do of this, like, this, like, idea that we're at the top of the food well, chain. that is a problem. And that we have ownership, because at the end of the day, if they're a thing, that means that, I don't know, they're more equal to us and, and that, t- I don't know, it just feels a little bit like this is, we it's still like have saying, to own Don't get it. any ideas. Yeah. We're still king yeah. of the jungle over here. Or right. Whatever. It's, is it like I wrote down in my notes, like, is this example of our need to dominate over something? And we just can't let that go. Yeah. There's this um, part of the Bible that talks in Genesis about when man, man was created, that they got dominion over the animals. And a lot of times um, real Christians will use yeah. that as almost like an excuse to treat them however you want instead of reading it as like a call to take care of them. That's what it feels like to Mm -hmm. me because I'm thinking about other cult there. They, even when animals are, you know, I'm thinking about the elephants in Thailand that we rode where I was just like cringing at how they were treated, but there's still a connection between the, you know, the elephants like living at the house of these, this family. And like, there's still this, I don't know. If you were in Thailand again with that situation, would you decline? Oh, for sure. There's no chance I'm getting on that elephant. Hell no, I felt so awful mm-hmm. in that moment. Right. That was my first season. I didn't know that I could say no. Well, yeah, and I don't judge you for that because right. they make you feel like this is not optional. Oh, right. I was so mad. I was so mad about that. Uh, um, okay, some ex- other important things that you should know about this elephant happy. Uh, this and why Happy was chosen by this animal rights organization. Mm. Happy was the first elephant to pass the mirror test. Oh, man. Right? Right. Okay, so we know that she's self-aware. Right. You mean to tell me that, like, the Citizens United can be a person, Lake Erie (laughs) can be a person, and Happy the Elephant, who can recognize herself in a mirror when you put paint on her and probably paint you a picture despite what Susie says. Um, <laughs> she gets no respect. I mean, I can't take it. Damn. I can, see, and, the zoo... Well, how do you feel about zoos these days? Because we well, talked about know, it on the show, but... Not good. Yeah, but not I great. do understand when there is a situation where... like. Didn't you hear that pandas are not endangered anymore? Did you hear this? No. Or like they're, they've turned their population growth around. Like they were really, in, really almost extinct for a second there. Okay. So you're saying like sometimes zoos do work right. that is valuable. Uh huh. Yes, absolutely. And so I think that they're, I, I, I think sanctuaries I'm cool with. Mm-hmm. And maybe zoos I'm not cool with. I don't know what the what how to like differentiate. <laughs> I think it's more like I don't like the idea of 
animals being taken to then be put into a small confined area. Well, a lot of times now they say, well, this animal was born in captivity, so they've never experienced wildness. Um, But to me, like like the instinct is still there. It for sure is, and you can you can reverse that. You can it. It would take a generation or two. It would probably take maybe a couple generations, but you can introduce them instead to take them to the sanctuary because that's where they're fighting for Happy to go. They want Happy to go to an elephant sanctuary where she has you know hundreds of acre, acres. Well, at least she'd have some friends that aren't and murderers. And they're saying like, oh, she doesn't want to hang out with them. No, she doesn't want to hang out with Patty the murderer. <laughs> It'd be like if I were all alone and then they're like, she didn't want to hang out with Johnny, so of course I don't want to hang out with Johnny. So she must want to be alone. Nope. I would just rather be alone. Yeah. (laughs) That is exactly what she's saying. Oh, I just can't. So the thing, the other, some other um, uh, uh, important things to to note in this Um, when kind of going back and forth, is an animal a person a thing? Even though we have clearly decided and made the argument for it being a person. Yeah. Um, humans have a history of holding animals responsible for their actions. Hmm. Okay. And punishing them. So pigs, elephants, bulls, dogs, cows, and other animals have been found guilty and executed for murder. Oh my god, right. I know. Like when a bear attacks like a camper and then they have to kill the bear. So if if we can try an animal for <laughs> try I mean, do we actually th- do I'm that? not kidding. Like they've really t- they've really taken it to go and, and I know this was a long time ago, but in the in the early 1500s, this is really funny. A French bishop accused rats of eating the local barley crop and initiated a trial and assigned the defendants a lawyer, but the case was dropped after the rats failed to appear in court. <laughs> no. That's the funny. That's so funny to me. You know what? I want animals to be people and I want more animals on trial. <laughs> this is great. There's be How about so, this one? Like courtroom dramas. Imagine. And then you're like waiting for the. What if one little rat showed up with his briefcase and he's like, oh, I told those guys. <laughs> and they just like couldn't make. They got, they got sidetracked because there was like a dumpster on the way. Yeah, they were hungry. Fuck off. They stopped and they were like, oh, I can't. And oh you had like one guy who was like we have a meeting (laughs) yeah right that's sarah be late the sarah rat and okay so i'll tell you another one in germany in 1559 a a parson banned sparrows from the church for their uh unceasing and extremely vexatious i don't even know that word do you know that word it's a good vexatious v-e no vexatious v-e-x-a-t-i-o-u-s oh why no vex What's vex like mean? To, you know, what vexes thee? Like, what upsets you? Oh, it's definitely ve- vexatious. That's okay. that. Okay. Unceasing and extremely to... vexatious chatterings and scandalous unchastity <laughs> during the <laughs> sermon. And he enlisted hunters to kill any birds that violated the ban. Wow. So he's like, I ban these scandalous unchast- 
unchaste, unchaste. I don't even know any words today. Chaste. Uh, uh, No religious words, apparently. Um, (laughs) So, yeah. So, animals have definitely been on trial before. And uh, so, like, if you can... If you can do that, then you should be able to, like, give the animal rights. I don't even understand why we have to debate all this stuff. It's like, okay, stop being an asshole. That is what I thought, too. But then the argument, the other side of it, says that what would happen is that and what this this, uh, animal rights organization wants is they want autonomy essentially which they define it as non-observable internal cognitive process so for the elephant? how you can how you and that's what they say they're like determining that determining a creature's autonomy would be an impossible task it would be you can't really do that like and it, they say it's kind of a slippery slope because yeah, of laws and just... why they don't want to even open that box and they have to keep things what they call a bedrock distinction between humans and animals because of a bunch of regulations with things like dog shelters and the transportation of horses or the criminalization of animal abuse. Like we've set up laws and everything to uh, see animals in this way. And if we changed it, like I could only imagine what it would be like to take Bo on an airplane. But I was just going to say that, like, anytime somebody has to use the slippery slope argument to object to something, to me, that means they don't actually have an argument. This is what people used to do about, like, gay marriage. Right. What's next? We can marry our dogs? No. No. Right. There's nothing next. Because what are they doing in Pakistan? (laughs) What are they doing in other countries where, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is... And and you know who said that? The fucking uh, uh, Wildlife Conservation Society, which runs the Bronx Zoo. <laughs> right. So we'll call right. that a little conflict of interest there. Right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what I don't have any conflict about, and that is how much I love the service Noom. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. I had a friend who's getting ready for her wedding, and she used this. Oh, my God. It is so helpful. I don't know if she any She said of it you... helped her correct habits she didn't even know she had. Yeah, and we're all like that. We all have behaviors that we don't even think about that Noom can help you um, mold and shape and change to become a better version of who you want to be. So if you have a goal that you're working towards, whether you want to, you know, have less stress and meditate more or lose weight or work out or whatever, they can help you. They can hold you accountable. They can encourage you. They will send you um, information on how to become better. It's a cognitive behavioral approach. I've heard so many people that love it just as much as I do. And it's so empowering if you are looking to improve, which we all should be. Start building better habits for healthier long-term results. Sign up for your trial at noom.com slash brain candy. That's N-O-O-M.com slash brain candy. Did you, do you have other things? Because we have a guest, so I can either jump right into that. I love a guest. Oh, it's such a good guest too. But I I don't want to cut you off if you have other fun stories or whatever. 
Well, I mean, I will have to, I'll save them for next time. I always okay. have fun stories, but I was just really excited to uh, uh, have our debate, which turned out to not be a debate at all, of uh, is an elephant a person? Yeah, no, I'm glad we're on the same yes. page there. Yeah. And I like, mean, but it really, stop being an asshole, whether it's to people or animals, and you'll be in good shape. I mean, yeah, at the end. Okay, so I read this book. It's called The Sleeping Beauties. And other stories of mystery illness. Oh my gosh. I'm so excited. I can't wait. (laughs) It's so good, Sarah. There's nothing I love more than mystery diagnosis and mystery illness. Ooh, I mean. (gasps) So like, I'll give you an example. You know where you'll read about some random 10-year-old girl who's suddenly catatonic and can't open her eyes and won't get out of bed. And like, there's all these things that can happen and people are like, "There's, they are fine. We did all these scans. We did all these tests and they are in good health. And so people become desperate, you know, to figure out what is causing their child or their loved one to yeah. suffer. And a lot of time there's this idea that, you know, they're faking it. Mm-hmm. And Suzanne O'Sullivan is the author and she's also a medical doctor. And she went around the world interviewing people who have experienced these mis- quote-unquote mystery illnesses. And she just says what she has found. And essentially, let me. she describes this so elegantly in the book. The, let's say you're embarrassed and mm-hmm. you blush, right? That mm-hmm. is emotion causing a physical symptom yes. Yes. that isn't fake. Correct. But isn't caused by like a disease or yep. whatever. Yeah. And like when you're sad, you produce tears. That is emotion making right. a fan, you know, physical manifestation. Yep. But we have this weirdness as humans where we're like, but it can't be more than that. <laughs> like it can, if you, you know, suddenly can't move your legs, they would not accept it as, well, she had... An extreme stress or trauma or whatever. Oh, I hate that. I hate it too, and I hate as that an experience. Somebody who experiences a, a multi chemical sensitivity, which is heightened by that. Sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's not, and it's like, yes, it's caused. Like it's in my mind, but not in my mind. Yeah. Well, oh, yeah. it's so hard to argue for those things. Right, and and that's what everyone in the book. They were so desperate for these diagnoses, but she, the reason they're desperate for like an actual quote unquote medical or organic diagnosis is just yeah. because there's a stigma if you say, right, this is psychosomatic. Cause then oh, it's right. like people think they're faking or they can just stop, but right. that's not true. And you can't. Oh my God. Oh, and you know what was God. cool? I, my brother, as you know, recently lost his wife and- at 46, super young, super traumatic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he woke up with all these abdominal pains, you know? Oh, and so yeah. it was crippling and it went on and on day after day. And so finally he said, if Cindy were still here, she would make me go to the ER. So I'm just going to do it because I know she yeah. would want me to. They did all these scans, of course, nothing wrong. And mm. they're like, dude, you have survivor's guilt. Oh. And he, like, couldn't accept that this was true. He's like, no, there must be something. They need to check my kidneys. They need to check my liver. They need to check everything. But that really was it. It's grief. 
this is what happens when emotions are repressed and they build up and they turn into physiological symptoms and that turns into dis-ease, which is disease of the body. And it's real. This is so (laughs) real, people. So real. We're going to see more and more and more of this. I can't even... Oh, for sure. Collective trauma. Absolutely. I told her, like, I have been a part of the problem. Whenever people have, quote unquote, psychosomatic issues, be it um, chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, Mm -hmm. I'm like internally have to not roll my eyes because I'm just like, Mm -hmm. oh, come on. It's almost like the evangelical in me, like, just think positive, (laughs) you know. I even remember when we were talking about panic attacks. Oh my God, right. If you haven't experienced that, you think, oh, just, you're fine. Just take some deep breaths. Well, and I get migraines. I'm sure a lot of people think those are kind of like, you know, is that real or is that emotional? You know, a lot of people have things and she uses these more extreme examples, but I think a lot of people can relate and will really love how she unpacks it in the book, how she makes you see Mm. what our bodies do why it matters and maybe how yep. you could prevent it or or deal with it if you experience it. Yes. Oh, Fantastic so book. I think you guys would all love it. Suzanne O'Sullivan, and she's so charming and lovely. I really enjoyed talking with her, and she's just so goddamn smart. <laughs> where you're just like, can you just be my life coach? Cause, oh, I you know. love that. Anyway, but you guys would love the book. It's great, and let's welcome Suzanne to the show. All right. We're in business. Thank you so much for coming on Brain Candy. I'm so honored. You're a star, man. (laughs) I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk to you. Thanks so much. Are you feeling like, holy heck, I'm amazing. Like I'm a doctor. Now I'm a fancy (laughs) writer. Are you like on top of the world? No, I uh, I am the uh, thing, like so many people, I completely have imposter syndrome. I just have that constant state of like, I cannot believe this is happening to me. When are they going to find me out? When is it all going to fall apart? All of that. So, well, let me reassure you because um, your book, which is here, the sleeping beauties and other stories of mystery illness is tremendous, totally fascinating. And you did such a beautiful job of making it accessible to mere mortals and um, really opening my eyes to so many things that I had never considered. I wanted to start with At the beginning of the book, you beautifully describe how humans accept the idea that things like embarrassment can cause blushing and sadness can cause tears. But then like our understanding of that connection between emotion and um, uh, physical manifestations is suspended. Why the heck do we do that? Yeah, I know it's amazing. People are willing to kind of go just so far in in agreeing that their bodies respond in a certain way to sort of emotional things or ideas. But when it gets to sort of the more extreme disabilities, people really struggle. So to kind of try and bring those ideas home to people, I just give common examples. So for example, if I say to somebody, you know, walk a straight line, sort of heel to toe in the middle of a basketball court, you know, anybody could do that without difficulty, assuming that they're well. But if you say to someone, now walk that exact same straight line on the edge of a cliff or, you know, at the top of a kind of wall where you're safe, but it's very high, it immediately changes the way you think about your body. 
And I think that people need to sort of become more aware of these everyday examples in which which, show, which provide evidence to the fact that we're not actually as control, as in control of our bodies as we think we are. Do you know what I think it is? We give ourselves too much credit. We think we're walking around completely in control of everything that we're thinking and doing and feeling. But you know what? Our unconscious brain is doing such a huge amount of work and we're simply not aware of it. And I think uh, it's from that sort of unconscious place that these symptoms arise. But, you know, if I say to people, you know, that if you're looking at something now, that everything that's in the periphery of your vision is being constructed by your brain to fill in a space, because in order to be safe and in order to pay attention to the things that are important to us, we have to be able to concentrate on certain things. And everything else around us is being filtered out, unimportant things are being filtered out, unimportant things are, are being constructed from the predictions and experiences. And that's our brain does that to make us efficient. But you know what? It's just like hair or your liver or any bit of your body that works also goes wrong. And these unconscious mechanisms go wrong very frequently. And I suppose it's a scary thing to admit that there's this part of your brain that's doing all sorts of stuff without you manning yeah. a ship. I think that's it exactly, isn't it? Is you know We like to think we're in control and anything that challenges the, the fact, especially, you know, we kind of think, oh, I'm intelligent, I'm insightful, I understand myself. And anything that challenges that view of ourselves is actually quite hard for people to um, accept. But unfortunately, it's reality. So they have to accept it. Yeah. And it comes to a bit of a problem whenever these folks struggle with these things and nobody wants to deal with it because it involves these mysterious elements. Uh-huh. But you did such a great job, too, of describing, I mean, you you describe illness as socially patterned. Hmm. I never even considered the idea. <laughs> I just thought, well, I have yeah. a fever and this is how you treat it. It's just very simple. But you're yeah. saying these things are informed by the societies yeah. in which we live. Can you describe that? I mean, what it's important to understand, I mean, this applies to all fields of medicine, but it, it applies particularly in mental health research. So all mental health research is, or never say all, but the vast majority of mental health research is done on white people who are educated, who live in industrialized countries, democratic countries and rich countries. That doesn't represent most of the world. And um, we take it as a sort of a gold standard that what's true for us is true for everybody. But if you um, compare, for example, something simple, which we can all understand, like weight, you know, an overweight person in Los Angeles is not the same as an overweight person in Samoa. These are completely different things. So we have different ways of interpreting our bodies and different standards for normal in different societies. And I think we don't, we kind of have this sense that Western medicine is the sort of um, gold standard. It gets the final say in everything. Now, that's right, of course, for things like cancer treatments or high-tech surgeries. Of course, Western medicine is, you know, superior in certain ways. But when it comes to sort of um, measuring things that have no absolutes, like how depressed does one need to be to be referred to as having an illness of depression or how high is does blood pressure have to be before it becomes abnormal? Then what you have is 
doctors who exist in a particular society determining those limits of normal. And you also have all of society's drives determining what we think of as normal. So, for example, in Western societies, in England, in in the US, we're driven to find as many diseases as possible because doctors don't like missing diseases. They don't want to be sued for missing diseases. Pharmaceutical companies want to sell drugs and research doctors need people to research on. So everything in Western society drives us to pathologize. So it's very much in my favor to call depression an illness because then it becomes my business. Mm. But if I call depression situational, then it it is is less my business. So society, in certain categories of illness, society drives us to decide what illness is and isn't. And we assume, because we only hear about Western medicine, we assume our way is right and the only way, but it's not. Yeah, there's a real arrogance there. Mm-hmm. And then it's sort of self-perpetuating, and you showed it really well with the example of, is her name Sienna or Sierra? Yeah, Sienna, yeah. And how, you know, she really wanted this particular diagnosis. But Mm. you were so patient, because as a reader, (laughs) I'm getting real mad at her. (laughs) (laughs) And But you showed how you can understand why she desired that diagnosis, because this is something we do to each other. Doctors do it to patients, and then patients want it from doctors. Like, just call it the name, right? Why do we crave that? I know. I think it's a sort of, I think people like to to blame doctors a little for this, but I would consider it to be sort of a a kind of an agreement between patients and doctors. This this is how we're going to do things. Is if someone comes to me and says that they feel dizzy all the time, you know, it's not, you know, if I test them in various ways and say it's all okay, um, and I simply say, listen, I haven't found anything, you've nothing to worry about. Now, some of us are reassured by that, and that would be enough. But most people who've made it all the way to the neurologist, which usually takes a couple of steps, probably haven't been reassured by someone just saying, listen, I don't think that sounds like anything serious. Don't worry about it. So then what happens is myself and the patient enter into a complicit agreement to give it a label, um, you know, to say, well, I think this is vertigo or I think this is a viral infection or um, sometimes more harmful labels than that. And that actually really works great for patient and doctor, because if I give a label, my patient will be happy. They'll say, thank you, doctor. You've diagnosed me. I feel better for knowing that. I've not given them a treatment. I've just given them an explanation that comes with a kind of tangible label. The patient feels better because they've got the label. I feel like I've done a great job. Brilliant. What what none of us are really considering is the effect of labeling, Um, the effect of, of how one changes one view of oneself or how one changes how one views one's body once one has a label. So if, for example, I'm given a label of migraine, um, which clearly is, is a serious condition, but if someone tells me I have migraine, I might go away and look up all the other symptoms of migraine and then examine my body for those and begin to find them. So it can sort of cause you to find other symptoms. So in other words, you are embodying the label that you've been given. The other downside is that you never shake a label, you know, particularly something like depression um, mm. a mental health diagnosis. Once you have it, it's on your medical records forever. So it can be sort of become sort of a defining characteristic of you. So that moment between me and the patient where we both agreed on a label that satisfied us both 
can have long-term implications that we're not we're not thinking about. So I'm really an, a fan of not labeling if possible, you know, because I, I, I've seen many people inhabit those labels, kind of dig into them and make them part of their identity. And that's really a problem. You, throughout the book, you show all these case studies and some of which are communities that experience it and others are individual. Um, in the early part of the book, some of those community examples include um, a religious component and they rely mm. on both doctors and shaman. Um, how does that intersect and why does that happen in some communities? You know, it was really interesting for me that actually, because, you know, I will openly say I'm an atheist, possibly agnostic, um, definitely agnostic, possibly atheist, you know, so it was difficult for me. I met a, a wonderful community called the Mosquito People who live um, on the Mosquito Coast of Nicaragua. And they have an illness there that only affects them. It's referred to a culture-bound illness since it only affects their culture. It's called greasy sickness. And it manifests as kind of manic seizures, crazy behavior, running around. Um, you know, if we saw it within our culture, you know, it, it would probably be given a psychiatric label. But within the mosquito community, it's referred to as greasy sickness. It's attributed to a, a, a demon attack and it's treated with ritual. Now, I think many people in Western societies will hear that and think it sounds really, um, well, let's let's say crazy, which I think is an okay word to use if, if you understand that greasy sickness translates to crazy sickness. It does sound crazy. Um, actually, what it is, is a socially sort of sophisticated way that the mosquito people use of expressing distress and asking for help. So it's actually a wonderfully nuanced condition that is a way for me to say to you, I need help. I'm not feeling well. I've got a particular problem. And for you to then provide me with the help without either of us needing to be too explicit about explicit about an embarrassing problem. And the way, so it's a kind of a, a language of distress that's understood by the community and, and elicits a caring response. And that caring response works. And those people treat this problem with ritual. Now, I have seen many patients of mine who have similar seizures and similar behavior, but in Western communities, we give it a psychiatric diagnosis. And you know the difference, right? In greasy sickness, when they have this sort of wonderfully nuanced way of understanding it and treating it, it gets better 100% of time. Identical symptoms when they come to my sort of university-affiliated hospital in London, only 30% get better. So in other words, you know, these people are making 100% people better with ritual and I am making 30% better with psychological interventions. Well, there's something to be learned there. And I don't think the thing to be, I'm not saying let's all become more spiritual. You know, that's either something you feel or you don't feel. But there's something in the ritual and there's something in the way that these people's symptoms are saying, I need help. I don't want to have to talk about it too deeply, but I need help. And then they pro are provided with help and they get better. And there must be something in, in the, the, the type of care that they get and the community response that they get that we could learn from without needing to resort to sort of um, pseudoscience or ritual. Yeah. yeah. And it felt very beautiful because mm -hmm. if I were dealing with patients that you're describing, I probably would not have much compassion. And mm -hmm. I noticed that theme in the book of this um, idea of like, number one, people don't want to be seen as faking something. Mm -hmm. 
and there's also this stigma that they are. <laughs> and, yeah. and I feel like I've, con- I've contributed to that. And I am glad you demonstrated why that's harmful. And did you feel like that's just like the main thing, this idea that they think if it's considered psychosomatic, then it's faking? Absolutely. And I mean, I felt those sort of um, negative reactions myself, certainly when I was a junior doctor, you know, if you saw somebody, you know, came into your clinic and they couldn't walk and you had a pretty good idea from the clinical findings that that walking had more walking problem had more of a psychological cause, you can feel it immediately. The drop in sympathy for that person, the sort of sense that um, you know that their problem situation they could ultimately recover and that somehow makes you feel less compassion for them. Whereas I'm always trying to argue that if two people can't walk, they're equally disabled, irrespective of the, um, of the cause. Um, but what I've found, it's taken me many years to come to this position because certainly as a junior doctor, I had the same wry look at people who had psychosomatic conditions as anyone else would and the same sort of lack of urgency of response as anyone else would. But then I've seen so many people's lives destroyed by psychosomatic conditions. I think there's a perception they're less serious than other other medical problems. But if you compare, so I also care for people with epilepsy, which is obviously a brain disease. People with epilepsy will get better 70% of the time. People with seizures due to psychosomatic cause, which are called dissociative, used to be called hysteria they get better 30% of the time. So while epilepsy is a very serious disease from which one can die, one also has a much better chance of living a completely normal life with it, whereas psychosomatic conditions are very hard to make better. So I think people need to sort of appreciate that uh, the severity of these things and how many lives are destroyed by them. You touch briefly in the epilogue about the idea of prevention. Um, Do you think that's something that's even possible? Well, that was really probably the thing that surprised me most in the journey of writing this book. So, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I run a clinic. My my job is to treat people and make them better, you know, and, and, you know, doctors think that the ultimate answer to all of these sort of medical conditions is to eradicate them, like you would eradicate smallpox or, please God, COVID or whatever someday. And then I suddenly realized from some of the communities I spoke to that the answer is not to eradicate these conditions. Firstly, our bodies will always respond in this way. Physiologically, this is how our bodies respond to certain psychological, emotional, behavioral triggers. So they will always respond this way. So you have to change what you do when they respond in this way rather than trying to eradicate it. So what a Western medical doctor does typically is a hundred MRI scans and then a sort of referral to a psychiatrist to explore your childhood or something. These are not the correct strategies. You know, you need to minimize tests that just really add to people's sort of anxiety about their symptoms. And the solution to psychosomatic symptoms is not all lying in some stress in your childhood or in some long psychoanalytical therapy. It may just be that you've had difficulty recovering from something and you don't trust your body anymore and you just need a physiotherapist to help you. So I think the first part of the answer to your question is to say you can't eradicate them, but perhaps you can stop them leading to chronic disability by responding differently when they occur in a more compassionate and logical way. But also I realized at the end of the book that actually these are 
psychosomatic conditions are necessary. If you take the example of the greasy sickness community, they use these um, kind of physical ways of expressing distress to ask for help. And other people I met in the writing of the book used these kinds of physical expressions of distress to sort of solve social problems, to say, well, you know, something's not right in my life and I recognize it through these physical symptoms. And if I change this bit of my life, the physical symptoms will go away. So there are kind of also a coping mechanism that we use to tell us, do you know what they do? They tell us you need to change something, you need to take a break. And if they're telling us that and we've no one else to tell us that, then maybe we need them. It would have been a simpler way of saying it. I <laughs> know, that makes so, so much sense. I'm curious about the gals at the beginning of the book who, um, these are younger kids in catatonic mm-hmm. state, sometimes for mm-hmm. years. And then yeah. when they emerge from it, if they emerge, they um, they tend to not want to talk about it. Why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you know, these children are extremely traumatized to begin with because these are children from asylum-seeking communities who have traveled to Sweden seeking asylum there. You know, they've had terribly traumatic backgrounds but they've arrived in Sweden as children. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, they they probably don't know that they're not considered Swedish in the first instance, you know, because they're very young when they arrive in Sweden. We make those distinctions, but I don't think children make those distinctions. Um, and then when faced with asylum, they fall into this state called resignation syndrome, which is a prolonged coma-like state. I think that part of the reason they don't want to talk about it is part of the reason probably is they're not fully aware of what's happening to them during it because Mm -hmm. it's what probably causes it is that sort of thing called dissociation. You know, that thing where you read the page of a book and you don't take it in or you're desperately listening for a particular part of a news broadcast and it just goes by you at any moment um, several times on several listens. Um, That state of dissociation is where different parts of our mind our attention and our awareness and our memory separate from one another so we don't take things in properly they're probably in a partially dissociated state so they're not taking things in but also imagine how traumatic it must be for them to to lie in bed unable to interact they're manipulated by people they're picked up they're moved around they're talked about it must be horrifically traumatic and i think that their attitude is they'd rather move forward with life. I I read something very nice. I think it was about Latvian people who said that, you know, after when someone dies, you should step over the grave and start to sing. I've forgotten the exact quote, but the point was that, you know, they don't advocate prolonged grieving. They advocate Mm -hmm. sort of moving forward and and being joyful rather than um, sort of uh, pouring over things. And I think it's very, again, it's a very Western culture thing to think we need to talk about things and to tell people that they have to talk about things. You know, that's such a, it's it's such a psychoanalytical thing, but you know what? A lot of cultures don't believe that talking about things is the best thing. A lot of cultures think that the best thing is just get on with it. And I, I wonder if we shouldn't do that a little ourselves sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I, think that, I think we could use a touch of that. Um, okay. Level with me here. What do you think is the reason why these, uh, illnesses tend to hit women more what is the deal man uh you know i i would basically love i'd love to be able to provide you with a definitive (laughs) answer i'll tell you because i don't know the answer but obviously i've thought about it a lot i mean when i was a junior doctor 
I was concerned that this was just a sort of a label that men gave to women. However, um, I am a woman and, you know, the vast majority of my patients are women. So there is no doubt at all that this is a female predominant condition. I think there's a few different reasons. I think, first of all, in, in some of the subsets of these conditions, women are physiologically vulnerable. So, for example, I would see a lot of people with seizures and um, they would often start with fainting. Now, young women faint. That's not psychosomatic. It's because we're healthy and we have low blood pressure. <laughs> and in certain circumstances, we're provoked to faint. You know, it's just our physiology. It's nothing wrong with us per se. It's just how we are and we grow out of it. Um, but often psychosomatic symptoms can start with sort of... Um, I'm trying to avoid using the word real because, you know, psychosomatic is real, but, you know, with a, a sort of organic medical problem, like a faint happens and then the faint causes us to um, sort of notice different changes in our bodies and to become over aware of our bodies, etc. So if women's bodies are prone to things like fainting, we also have these cyclical changes happening in our bodies that we spend our whole teen years trying to understand you know our bodies are changing all the time and psychosomatic conditions can arise when we notice bodily changes but we don't know what to make of them so i feel that women are physiologically vulnerable through all the changes happening in our bodies through features of things like low blood pressure that produce symptoms like dizziness for example i think that also women are in the position that that can trigger these conditions. So we're more likely to be in a position where in trapped situations, situations from which we can't escape. I mean, all of the people I write about in, in the book are sort of young women trying to sort of have a voice, trying to be heard. I think even in the 21st century, young women's voices are not heard in the same way. And this is a, a, a cultural way of asking for help for young women. Yeah. Um, also, men and women do react differently to things. Men are more likely to be in prison. Men are more likely to be aggressive. More, men are more likely to um, sort of um, have other sorts of mental health problems. So we are a little bit different, men and women. So I think it's probably multifactorial. But I tell you where I think the misogyny lies here. I think people kind of say that psychosomatic symptoms are, are a label used to dismiss women. Mm -hmm. I actually think it's the opposite. I think that women get psychosomatic symptoms and therefore they are dismissed. Yeah. And I wonder if it was a condition that affected sort of middle-class bankers predominantly, might there have been much more scientific interest in it in the past? I just love you. I wish you could just follow me <laughs> around and explain the world. Um, it's funnily enough, I was reading your book. My brother lost his wife. She was only 46 and he was having these terrible stomach pains and he went to the ER. They did all these tests, nothing wrong they were like, dude, you have survivor's guilt and, you know, it's grief and, you know, it manifested physically. And I was so happy to be reading your book to say, Hey, this is happening Common. to yeah. lots of people. Um, but I hope everybody reads it. I know our listeners are going to love it. And we have one last question that we ask everybody. Um, and that is if you are a person who owns a vehicle, um, what do you keep in the trunk of your car? Or the boot, as it were. <laughs> that is a truly, uh, thank you for asking a question I've definitely never been asked before. <laughs> I hate that this says so much about me, but I have an entire sort of 
rescue sort of kit in the back of my car. You know, like if I remember reading once or or a friend once broke down in snow and the car got stuck in snow for like 12 hours or whatever. And I said, if that ever happens to me, I'm ready. So I've got everything. I've got like the shiwi. So I've got something to empty my bladder into. I've got like warm blankets. I've got socks. I've got water. If there is an apocalypse and it hits me when I'm in my car, I'll survive for a significant amount of time. You and hate I, 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 like I you don't like that represent- no that's why we ask it because believe me if you go to a cocktail party and you ask this it will always be indicative of who the person is it's so fun oh I'm gonna so, do that yeah <laughs> because you know what's in there says a lot about where they are in their life but that is super fun and I love that you call it a shiwi I didn't know it had a name. You not call it that. Then. I never okay. heard that. It's a brand, I think. It must be a brand. <laughs> I mean, I need one. Um, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank I you. I loved having you on, and I just loved reading your book. Keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.